Hi, everybody. Welcome to Artifice episode 56. Um, This is our last episode of the month of April and the last episode that I recorded in person. Um, So starting next week, we'll have um, Zoom interviews. And I I have kind of an exciting, uh, what I think is an exciting series planned. So I'll tell you more about that next week. Um, But this is the last in-person interview. um, And I I'm, I'm, um, I had to cancel a ton of interviews that I had scheduled for March and April. Um, I scheduled way more interviews in those months than I normally do because I knew my album was coming out in May and um, I was planning on going out of town for a week and now none of that is happening. Um, but yeah, I, I had to I had to cancel a bunch of interviews um, and will reschedule those uh, whenever it, it is safe to. Um, but yeah, starting next week, we're going to have some Zoom interviews. Um, and so, so this is the last regular one for, you know, um, for a little while. And my guest is Blake Castleman. Um, I'm going to read you Blake's bio right now. Blake Castleman is a comic book writer, screenwriter, film producer, and teacher. He graduated from the University of Utah with a bachelor's degree in film and later earned an MFA in education. He is the co-writer and co-creator of the graphic novel The Devil's Triangle with Brian C. Hales. He also co-wrote the award-winning dark fantasy short film Kiss the Devil in the Dark, starring Doug Jones um, from Star Trek Discovery and The Shape of Water. Many of the films he has written and or produced have been screened in film festivals throughout North America. In 2012, he co-founded a film production company, Rare Legend Films, and co-wrote and produced the award-winning feature-length comedy, Adopting Trouble, available for rental or purchase on Amazon Prime. His short fiction has been published in a number of anthologies, and he has edited the sci-fi and fantasy anthology, Heroic, Tales of the Extraordinary, on behalf of the Aaron Alston Foundation. Over the years, he has taught screenwriting, film and story theory, and storyboarding classes, and has worked as the director of programming for Fan X Salt Lake Comic Convention. Okay, you guys, here is my interview with Blake. Enjoy it. Sometimes art feels like magic, pure, visionary. And sometimes it's brought to you in part by focus groups and algorithms. And the makers of art are no different. We're creatives, sure, but we're also salespeople. We need imagination and imitation. We need deep, meaningful connections, but we also have to network. Yep, even if you're an introvert. And that's my point. Balancing vulnerability with veneer is tricky, and it's a struggle we don't often share. So let's share. I'm Emily Merrill, and this is Artifice. Today's episode of Artifice is brought to you by The Voice Straw. Back in episode 36, I interviewed Justin Timberlake's voice teacher, the amazing Mindy Pack. Mindy just launched this incredible new product designed to improve the quality of singing and vocal performance through science and proper technique. The Voice Straw is a vocal training tool for singers, actors, and speakers. It helps relieve tension, strain, breathiness, cracking, and flipping in the voice. Scientifically shown to improve singing technique, a must-have tool for anyone looking for vocal success. Head to www.voicestraw.com and enter promo code ARTIFICE10, that's all caps, A-R-T-I-F-I-C-E-1-0, for 10% off your purchase today. 
I'm here with Blake. I feel like maybe we should just acknowledge that the coronavirus is making everybody feel weird. Yes. We're, we're recording this on March 17th. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Happy St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> I wore no green because I have no fear of being pinched. I'm wearing green, but I didn't plan it. It just happened. Um, I honestly, I didn't think about it until right now. And it's like a forest green. It's not a good, like, Irish green. <laughs> yeah. I figure anyone that... Uh, Wants to pinch me, uh, they're kind of taking their they're life into their own. For they're it. asking yeah. for it. So <laughs> I'll be like, all right, it's fine. Go for it. It's like choice. you have a death wish. I um, look healthy, but yeah. you never know. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah. The other day I was with, or on, on the weekend, I was with a group of people and um, we were, we were throwing like a, a baby shower for my sister in law. Hardly anybody that was invited came, sure. but we still, we still threw the shower. Um, and someone said like, well, none of us are sick. And I was like, that we know of, we know. <laughs> like, yeah. it definitely could be. So I always start with people. Um, I always start with people by asking, what were you like as a creative child? Like what were kind of the first things that you were up to as a, as a creative child? Um, I think it started with, and it doesn't have to be related to what you're doing now. Just yeah. like, I think it started with uh, Disney, like like watching movies, watching movies, but also, and this really dates me. My parents fine. <laughs> had the Disney soundtrack albums, yeah, to all the animated features like Mine too. Peter Pan and. Sleeping Beauty, Cinderella. Yeah. My favorite was Peter Pan. And that album had not only the songs featured in the animated movie, yeah. but also it had a lot of the dialogue too. And I oh. loved I loved the the fantasy yeah. of Peter Pan and also the pirate element. Yeah. Peter Pan kind of has everything. I was a little kid who loved Cowboys and Indians. I love pirates. Yeah. And I loved like the old Steve Reeve Hercules movies. I loved anything that had Roman soldiers yeah. in it. Um, I loved watching movies that had as probably a violent kid. <laughs> I love movies that had conflict between yeah. Indians and the Calvary. Yeah. Even though you, you watch you- those movies now and and their portrayal of Indians, you kind of totally. cringe. Yeah. Well, well, you know, if you're a small child, like, what what do you think that was about for you? Like, what what about those kinds of stories was interesting for you as a little kid? I think it represented a different world than the yeah. world I lived in, and I've always loved fantasy. Yeah. And even even westerns were kind of a fantasy to me because totally they were something that did not represent the world I lived in. Pirates did not represent the world I lived in. Roman soldiers or Hercules, obviously, didn't. Jason and the Argonauts, Sinbad. Uh, I remember some of my first memories as far as asking my dad to take me to movies was the old Sinbad movies. Yeah. Sinbad and the Eye of the Tigers, the seventh voyage of Sinbad. Do you you feel like there was anything specifically about like the kind of like war element, like between, you know, different types of groups that like, like what did that, what was that interest about for you? 
I I really got into kind of the the the, the dramatic conflict. Yeah. Of war. Did it feel like? I mean, I'm totally. Pro- I'm not. These are leading questions, but did it feel like? Were Were you interested in like underdog fighting, like? you know, an establishment. I was interested in the good guy against the bad guy. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, you, you have in the pirate movies, you, you'd have two pirate ships fighting each other. Yeah. And one side represented the good guys and one right. side represented the bad guys. Again, going back to these Westerns that a lot yeah. of them are unwatchable now. Yeah. The cavalry or the white settlers were the good guys. Right. Yeah. The Indians were the bad guys. Those are the stories that you're um, yeah, interpreting as a child. Right. The the yeah. Roman soldiers were the bad guys, the former slaves or the common man who was rising sure. up against Roman oppression or Hercules dealing yeah. with, you know, they were the good guys. Sure. Yeah. And it was almost like the oppressive establishment yeah. was the bad guys. And then but it could it, be the other way too. Yeah, yeah. It just kind of depends yeah. on and who's, then, who's and telling then as the story. I got, and then as I got a little older, I discovered comic books. Okay, superhero comic books. How and how old were you? Sorry, how old were you when you were like really getting into to Disney stuff? I, oh, uh, I, I'm assuming I started getting into Disney. Even before, like the little, point of my life yeah. where I have memories. Sure. Okay. I have. I have. I, I'm. I'm not forgetting about the comic books. We'll get there. Yeah. Um. But I do like to kind of ask people about like these. Like. You like. What are you like as a small child? Do um. Do you have like? Did your parents or anyone else like? Did you feel like people around you were noticing that you were like more interested in, like stories than yes. other kids? Like yes. it was something that was. How did they like well, talk? How did they talk to you about it then, or how are they? You know, well, I, how do they rem- remember it? The, it was encouraged, yeah. As far as I can tell, because I look at old pictures. Like my mother has a scrapbook that I, she passed away in January, yeah. and I took possession of of a scrapbook she had made when I was young, and it had pictures of birth through maybe three or four years yeah. old, and a lot of those pictures I'm wearing an Indian outfit with a full headdress yeah. i'm wearing yeah. a cowboy outfit yeah with and again this this represents the it, it 70s doesn't, doesn't translate i'm a little three well. or four year old kid yeah. wearing a full cowboy outfit with a holster and guns yeah and i think they were the guns that like a little pop yeah yeah little pop cap yeah yeah cap, cap guns. gun yeah it took us a second to get there and and or i'm or i'm dressed as a pirate and I have a sword, a fake sword. Yeah. And and I and I understand that this is and and even with my own kids, these were things that we were, you know, my wife and I were a little wary of giving our kids when they yeah. were young and more impressionable. But when I was a kid, it was full board. Yeah. Here you go. Oh, you're into cowboys and Indians? Yeah. Here you go. Did you did your parents or like the adults around you, did they recognize that as creativity? Maybe it's a hard question to answer, but yeah, like, like now I guess maybe here's a better way to ask it. Like now that you've turned out as a creative, as an Uh adult creative, do people say things to you like, Oh, well, Blake, you were always. Yeah. Yeah. So like what kind, what does that sentence end in? Blake, you were always one making up stories and 
making up characters and scenarios and creating whole worlds. Yeah, so it seemed like more than just like a play, maybe. Like it seemed yeah. like a little bit more of like a like a like an interest. Okay, cool. I was all in. I I have memories of trying to and and having my my mother and my great aunt who didn't have any kids. You don't have to wear those if you don't want to. Oh, I'm I'm good. Okay. Okay. Um I had a great aunt who was basically a second mother. I remember finding stories about the old west. Yeah. About pirates. You mean like books? Like you, books, you mean finding yeah. storybooks? Yeah, yeah, storybooks at the library or stuff we had in the house. Yeah. And having them read them to me yeah. and then trying to figure out how to read them to myself. Yeah, yeah, And that's yeah. where my journey for reading and a love of reading started. Awesome. Okay, that's perfect, like a perfect like origin for that. So, okay, so you were, at that point, you're probably like six, seven, eight, maybe. But by the time you're eight, you're reading, um, reading for sure. I think I think I was, well, here's the thing. Um, I didn't talk much until I was about four years old. Okay. Um, I guess, I don't think my mother panicked. I don't think she sent me to a specialist or anything like that. She just, and, and this is what she told me years later. She said, you just didn't seem to have a lot to say. Interesting. And then when I was about curious. Yeah. And then when I was about four years old, I started talking and that was about the same time that I started trying to teach myself or have people teach me how to read. Okay. Interesting. Before that, yeah. I was I was clearly into things. Yeah, you were consuming and like I said, a lot. I, I I I I have some pictures from my first birthday, and I'm getting, I, I'm getting, for presents, I'm getting a fake tomahawk yeah. and a fake bow and arrow. So set. those interests were like just right from the beginning. Right. Yeah. So I was, even though I wasn't talking at at a at the normal level yeah. until I was four years old. I was still expressing my interests. Yeah. And maybe that's where the creative part became more important than stating things. As you're talking about this, it's making me remember, I have a brother who's um, eight years younger than me. So like, I remember him being a baby. I remember him being little and he loved movies like from just like a young, young age. And he would watch the same movie, you know, with like wrapped, like, complete full attention. Right. Um, and he, he did this funny thing. He would have like, um, little props that he needed for like each movie. Like if he was watching like free Willy was one of the favorites, he would have this like little whale that he would hold. And so, yeah, I mean, this is also like pre-verbal he's showing like there's this extra interest, like, you know, and he would, if he was watching like Jurassic park, he would like, you know, have a little, like some kind of a prop that he would, he would hold while he watched the movie. So I can, I can totally like, I mean, I don't have children and I, I haven't spent that much time around children, but like, my, I feel like my brother was like that. Yeah. Like just interested, like, you know, like this child is more interested than another child. He's not just like in the room while the movie's on. Like he knows like every word of the dialogue, even though he's like not really talking. Yes. So I can, I can like, I can picture that. Um, okay, so you you started learning how to read like really young. You were interested in reading. You wanted more stories. And then, how old were you when you were kind of introduced to comic books? 
I was probably about five years old when I was interested when I was introduced to comic okay. books. Um, and I had an aunt who shopped a lot of yard sales yeah. and thrift stores yeah. and flea markets. This is me growing up in the Bay Area. Okay. And she would read the comics she bought and then she would pass yeah. them along to us. That's great. So my first introduction to comics was like the Disney comics, Archie comics, stuff even now geared more for kids. Yeah. And occasionally we would get something along the lines of Superman or Batman or the yeah. Justice League. So that was my introduction to superhero comics. I liked comics, but I wasn't passionate about them. Yeah. But what comics did for me is it kind of accelerated my reading. Sure. Because here was something else. Here was something else. I mean, it was mostly pictures, but there were caption boxes and there were dialogue balloons. So it just gives you like a little bit of text. Right. With some story there for you to see and kind of connect it. And I wanted to know what was going on. I wanted to know what the characters were saying. Flash forward a couple of years to when I was seven years old. Now, I, my grandma, my mother's mother, was the manager of the toy department at the Woolworth store in downtown San Jose. Okay. Every time we went into the store to visit grandma, she would say, pick out a toy. Yeah. And we would do that. Well, one day, my mother, it was just me and my mother. I, I couldn't tell you the reason why we went to, to visit grandma, but we did, and just before we were going to leave, Grandma said to me, pick out a toy. Well, I noticed for the first time that there was a rack of comic books yeah. in the toy area. Yeah. And I said, can I get one of those? Yeah. And Grandma said, pick out two. So I picked out an issue of The Amazing Spider-Man yeah. and an issue of Captain America and the Falcon. Cool. And this was my introduction to Marvel Comics. Yeah. And at that point... There was an effect on me as a seven-year-old that these Marvel comics had on me that the DC comics, the Archie, and Disney comics did not have an effect on me. What was it? It just captivated me and engaged me and made me want more. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what do you think it was? Like, was was it the way that they were written? Like, were there cliffhangers in a different way or like... I think so. Yeah. You know, and if you go back and if you read the history of Marvel and DC, the thing that that Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko, Larry Lieber, and a few of the others that were there in the early 60s when Marvel Comics became, well, they were called Timely Comics, and they did romance and science fiction and monster and Western comics up until 1961. Yeah. And then about that, time that Stan Lee and Jack Kirby introduced the Fantastic Four, superheroes were becoming a thing again. So it was a business decision by the owner of Timely Comics to say, hey, let's start doing superheroes again. Because Timely, back in the 30s and 40s, Timely did superhero comics. Timely was the company that introduced Captain America. Timely was the company that that introduced the Submariner and the original... the original Human Torch, and this was all going back in the late sure. 30s, early 40s, when you know, shortly after the first superhero comic, which is Action Comics number one, yeah, was introduced, and then the year later, Batman was yeah. introduced, and and the rest is history. Yeah. But comic books in the 50s, yeah, 
Yeah. Uh, because of some uh, political stuff. It was it was it was partly political. It was a it was a psychiatrist blaming mm. juvenile delinquency on comics. Th- that was happening uh, back then. That was happening back then. It's <laughs> crazy. Kind of a witch hunt. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. So and so and yeah. so the pop. Even though even though certain DC comic superheroes, Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, and so forth, they remained relevant. Yeah. Other comic book companies got out of the superhero business. Sure. Including Timely. Yeah. But when Marvel started back up with the Fantastic Four and then shortly after they introduced Spider-Man, the Hulk, the X-Men, and so forth, Stan Lee decided that part of what they were going to do was instead of have these kind of two-dimensional superheroes, which is what you primarily got with Superman and Batman, they wanted to create superheroes who had like this totally secret feeling. identities yeah. who were people that dealt with the same problems that you sure. and I had. Totally. So that, that I can totally see how that would affect you in a different way. You'd, you could see like, you could relate better. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So then what happened? So did you, did you start, did you ever get into drawing? Yes. Yeah. So yeah. What happened like next? So like you, you fell in love with these comics. And so then- I, 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 I started Buying Marvel comics and collecting first, collecting first, okay, becoming familiar with the universe. I, I, I bought the Fantastic Four. I bought Spider Man. I bought Captain America. Mm-hmm. I bought the Avengers. I bought. And you're you know, like a little boy, right? So you're buying these things with like, your, uh, was it was it significant for you to be buying those things for yourself? Yes. Yeah. Because you were like working. Were you I get, would get my allowance. Yeah. I would do my jobs. Yeah, do your chores. I would do my chores. Yeah. I would get my allowance. Yeah. And then every Friday when I got my allowance, I went with one of my older brothers or my mom and my dad to, there's a 7-Eleven yeah. about a, probably three blocks away. So that away. was like serious for you back then. Every Friday I could buy two comics. I mean, they cost They cost 25 cents back then. Wow. I could buy two comics, so I would go to 7-Eleven, and I would carefully choose which yeah. two comics I, I could buy. You know, maybe this is like, I, I had similar experiences as, as a child. Like, I, I, you know, started to have kind of certain types of creative passions, and I had to, like, invest in those passions with, like, my own money as a little kid. And I feel like, for me, that really, like, taught me, like, it was the beginning of, like, commitment to like creative endeavors for me. Yeah. So I don't know that everybody would have that same experience, but it sounds like that. I mean, that's, that's you as a child, like being serious about something, which must like, it must have an effect on you and how you see the thing and how you value the thing. And it also must have an effect on how people around you are um, like understanding your passion about the thing. Yeah. Like I'm sure that kind of, shifts the narrative a little about how people are kind of talking to you about this thing that you're interested in. And my parents saw how passionate I was about it because being able to go get my comics was a reward. Yeah. For me doing what I needed to do. Yeah. And, and, and keeping up with their expectations. Yeah. If I got in trouble or if I did something that upset them, then either that was either, the first thing to, either my trip to, to 7-Eleven would would 
be yeah. canceled. Yeah. Or I would have comic books confiscated. If I made oh. them mad enough yeah. at me, I remember one awful night where I had done something. I think it had involved me and some other kids in the neighborhood throwing bricks at each other and breaking some glass. Oh, no. Yeah. And it was it was a big deal. And for my punishment, I had to bring out the two... Your favorites. Two comics that I... The, the yeah. two most recent comics I had purchased. Oh, no. And my dad looked at both of them, set one aside, and then tore the other one oh, up. Oh, my gosh. You'll never forget that. No, I mean, I, I'm positive. <laughs> like, I'm sure that in this moment you can, like, recall that exact, like, yep. feeling. You get, yep. like, a pit in your stomach. That's a memory that will never go away. Yeah. That's that's rough, but also probably like pretty formative. Yeah, it really like makes you think about consequences. Which like I mean, again, I think I, I had a couple of experiences as a young child that also I think made me learn about consequences in a way that I've seen some of my peers learn in their twenties. Yeah, you know, um, yeah. So okay, so how did you get into like starting to um, contribute creativity, like? in whatever whatever that means to you rather than like kind of just sure. consuming and having an interest. Yeah. Um I had this this all happened probably within a year of each other. Okay. When I had that experience of discovering these Marvel comics and starting to absorb myself into this amazing yeah. universe and and the first thing I did was I started writing and drawing my own comics. Yeah. And And you were like Eight? No, I was I was still seven years seven. old. Little this baby. Is, this yeah, is little still, tiny little this guy. This is still, uh, like I said, I, I think I was, I think I was um, just a few weeks removed from my seventh birthday and, when I had that experience yeah. of of grandma allowing me to take yeah. these two comics with me, and then within a few months after that, I was starting to draw my own comics so were you were you drawing like characters from the marvel universe or were you drawing your own it was a combination of both i was uh my three favorite heroes at that time were captain america iron man and spider-man of course yeah as a side note it's cool that i can talk about these characters and everyone knows yeah what I'm talking about, whereas if we were doing this 25 years ago yeah. or 20 years ago, people yeah. would be like, who? You know? Yeah. I, I'm only 32, so I feel like I don't remember a time that like these things weren't in yeah. the collective consciousness. But right. yeah, I mean, I've been told like it, they were kind of obscure for a time. Yes. So cool. Um, so anyway, those were my three favorites. So I started writing and drawing my own comics based on those characters. Yet the villains were my own creation. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And what was exciting to you about it? Like, were you, were you, um, feeling more creative about like the drawing or about like the story or was it equal? It was equal. Okay. Yeah. And, and, um, I don't know. Do you have any, it's such like an open question, but do you have any memories about like what, that creativity felt like? Like, did you get nervous about like, is it going to be good? Um, was there anything about it that felt like, ex- especially like exciting or tricky? Like, what do you remember from the very beginning of? I didn't feel nervous about it because I was creating for myself. Yeah. And certainly anyone who wanted to look at them, them yeah. or look at them were welcome to. Yeah. 
Um, but it was play for you. It was play. Yeah. I I remember uh, one issue of Iron Man. It was the first time I did a cliffhanger. Yeah. And Iron Man was I was dealing with a villain I created called Tornado Man. Cool. <laughs> and Tornado Man and Iron Man were fighting each other, and the battle kind of took them over the ocean. Mm. And then Tornado Man hit Iron Man with a powerful burst of wind that popped his helmet off and dropped him into the ocean. Yeah. And he was sinking. And that was the end of the episode. And that was the end of the issue. Of the issue. Cool. And so I remember the anticipation of trying to figure out how is Iron Man going to get out of this? Yeah. And how is he going to defeat yeah. Tornado Man? And, yeah. I, and I did it. I created the comic. Yeah. Interesting. But I did it completely for my own satisfaction. Yeah. I wasn't I didn't have any aspirations of thinking, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna show this to people and be sure. discovered as a as a creative because I just did it for my pure enjoyment. Sure. Did you have thoughts about like um wanting to get better at it? Like like you yes. know, like almost like a self competition or maybe that's the wrong word, but like did you feel like motivated to like improve? Yes. Yeah. Um, not as a competition, but my aspiration was to to dr- write and draw as well as the comics yeah. I was reading. Were you? Sorry, go ahead. And well, I was just aware of you know my 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 artistic skills were and still are pretty crude. Yeah, um, you were a tiny child back then. And so, I remember in school, like if. I wasn't doing anything if I was bored doodling pictures like of, of Iron yeah. Man and Spider-Man over and over and over yeah. because I wanted to get as good as the people that were drawing comics. Not, again, yeah. I didn't, and this shows how young I was, I had no idea that the people that created comics who wrote and drew them got paid for it. Yeah, so you weren't thinking like that at all. No. I was going to ask that. I remember, I remember thinking they did it because it was so cool. Yeah. And it brought so much joy to me and other kids yeah. that I know who read comics. Yeah. Um, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. You know, I, I've been interviewing artists now for over a year. Um, episode 50 came out today. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Um, you know, and something that I just, like, I think for me, this podcast is like, it's important to me for a lot of reasons. But one of the things is I just, I feel um, bummed out by the lack of creativity I see like in the world sometimes. Um, And so sometimes I think if I talk to enough creatives, maybe I'll be able to crack some kind of thing about how we're able to maintain creativity. And I don't know, I'm, I'm curious about it. So one thing I've been thinking a lot about lately is like, I feel like there's two things. There's like creativity as, as an impulse or creativity as like a, an affinity for children and adults but I think especially for children. Uh, And then there's this other thing, which is like some kind of a drive, some kind of a resilience, some kind of like a productivity kind of a thing. And it sounds like for you, like in the way that, you know, this just creativity was manifesting was mostly in terms of like your curiosity. And then like, it was a lot of work for you to start like creating a thing. It Maybe was. You, you didn't. You weren't just like a child that had this like prodigious, like talent. I didn't. Yeah. No, I re- I really didn't. I 
I, I didn't have what people would call yeah. natural talent. So I'm, I mean, I'm so into that. Like, I, I think it's more, com- I mean, I know it's more common. Like I'm the one who's, I'm interviewing professional artists and most people say something similar. Like, I mean, I, I think, and you know, I teach children and I, I'm a broken record about it. I say it all the time, but like I've had children, students that I'm teaching who are very, very talented, who don't have that other thing. And they don't, they're not going to pursue creativity into adulthood. Um, very, very rarely, I think. One thing that I remember, and this is something I've never let go of for good or bad. Yeah. <laughs> but when I was a kid and I started creating first these comics, and then shortly after I started creating these comics, I started writing my first short stories. Okay, cool. Because I was also getting into novels yeah. at the time, too. Yeah. Um, Stuff like Ramona and Beezus. I love and that stuff. Henry Huggins. No, not is it Henry Huggins? I don't know. What's the series? I know Ramona. Runaway Ralph. Yeah, I don't know um, that one. You know, uh, the Great Brain books. Love Great Brain. Stuff that was geared yeah. towards kids my age. Yeah. I was reading um, that stuff and I'm... So nice reading little. that stuff was also uh, inspiring me to, to write. Yeah prose yeah as well as creating these comics but the thing about me writing prose or creating these comics when i was seven eight years old is i felt not obligated yeah but i felt like this was something i should do because i had that desire yeah and these were things I liked, and so therefore it was a natural fit for me. Yeah, I like comics, therefore it was natural to f- to create comics. Yeah, yeah, but surely, like you know, that not all people who like comics like have sure. that. So, sure. um, I I was leading into this question for a long time, but like, do you? I mean, what are your theories about like where that thing comes from? Do you think that thing is teachable, or like just what do you think about it? I don't think it's teachable. Yeah, I think it's part of you. Yeah. What do you think it is? And I think that's one of the unique things that make us different. I think that's why we have people that are artists and people who aren't. Yeah. That's why I think we have people that are willing to sacrifice the time. And and I say sacrifice, but going back to when I was a kid, it wasn't a sacrifice to me. It was was time well spent. Yeah. I think that's the key right there. I mean, when I'm working with my students, um, you know, they they say like, I want to get better at this. And I... I write them out of a plan like, or, and you know, we'll be pretty creative. Like you could do it this way. You could do it this way. You could do it this way. Like, you know, figure out what works for you, but these are some things and they'll just be like, that's hard. And I, I kind of feel like, yeah, but I remember being where you are not being good at this thing yet and feeling like, yeah, this is going to be challenging and like looking at it ahead of me is daunting. But I also remember feeling like excited. Yes. I think that excitement is yeah. a key. Yeah. It makes I, um, the hard work like I went through a period of my life in a different way. Sure. I went through a period of my life when I was 16, 17 where I I wanted to play a guitar, I wanted to be a musician. Yeah. And I even convinced my mother to buy me a second-hand guitar and I started taking guitar lessons. Yeah. And I realized this isn't what I want. Yeah. You didn't love it enough to put it. in the work. Yeah. 
Interesting. And that's why so, I think it has to be something inherent yeah. inside you. What yeah. do you think it is? Like, what do you think? I mean, do you, is there a name for it? Like, I mean, again, like we talk about creativity. Like, I think as a culture, we have a vague idea of like what that is. But this other thing, like, I don't hear a lot of people talking about it, but I, I suspect it's much more important. I don't know if there's a name for it yeah. other than it's something that's Some inside kind of, like, of you. A it's, determination. Part, it's part of you. It's yeah. part of you. Do you think, I mean, this is so like, who knows, but like, do you think it's like, ge- like a genetic kind of a thing? Like, do you think it's like a, a personality trait? Like, do you think it's biological? Do you it think it's be. like environmental? Like, I think, it, it could be a combination yeah, of all three. I'm sure it is. Um, my yeah. mother liked to write. Yeah. Um, mainly poetry. I'm named after the poet William Blake. Cool. But she liked to write stories too. So maybe it's kind of like modeled and encouraged in a way that even really subtly. And she loved to read as well. Yeah. And she was okay. And she told me again when I was older that she would have friends or people that knew our family that would find out that I read comic books and they would come to her and say, why are you letting, why do you let him do that? Why are you letting him read comic books? Yeah. Because there was still that pervasive idea that that violent superhero comic books led to problems in their life. And it's so like not like that anymore. It wasn't considered literature. Think, yeah. You know, it was it was considered wasted time as opposed to like productive, yeah. stimulating. Even even benefiting you the same way that reading literature sure. yeah. does. And or, what did she say? She said, Well, at least he's reading. Yeah. Yeah. But you were reading novels too. Yes. So, okay. So you started, um, I, w- I want to like, I like spending a good amount of time in the childhood, but now I want to make sure that we like can <laughs> get a- ahead. So, so you started writing short stories when you were how old? Seven. I, uh, oh, wow. One, th- there was a UHF station, channel 44 in, in out of San Francisco that, showed the Johnny Weismiller old black and white Tarzan movies okay. every Saturday. Yeah. So that was part of my Saturday ritual. I'd get up, we'd watch Saturday morning cartoons until breakfast. Then after breakfast, we had to do our jobs. Well, the Tarzan movie started at 1 p.m. Yeah, so it motivated you to so get your I jobs motivated, done. So I had to get my Saturday chores yeah. done by 1 p.m. Yeah. So I could watch the Johnny Weismiller Tarzan. That's so funny. So we talk about fandoms. Yeah, I was in the Marvel comics. Um, there were certain books I like to read, but I was also really into Tarzan, even though I hadn't started reading the, the Edgar Rice yeah. Burroughs books yet. But I love these Tarzan the sto- movies. They're very fantastic. I mean, it's it's fantastical. Yeah. Yeah. Again. Yeah. They represent it's fantastical, a, but like in our world. Like Westerns, like pirate movies, the Tarzan movies represented a world that wasn't part of my world. Yeah. And it was action packed and it was dangerous. And yeah. it was it was it was a fantasy world and I was drawn to it. So fast forward me until you're like 13. Um, okay. What were you doing when you were like that age? Like how, what had changed? What had changed was Star Wars had come out. Okay. So you were still doing the same stuff. You were still. I was still doing the and same stuff. And you were stuff. getting better at it. Mm-hmm. Um, by the time you're that age, had, had, you, had you started feeling more... Um, I don't know, like, were you entering any competitions or, like, no. it was still very private. It was still just yours. It was mine. Okay. It was mine to share with family and, and friends who were interested. 
Okay. If no and one was interested, I didn't. The Star Wars care. universe is like in there too. I was nine years old when Star Wars came out. Um, it was the first time I had ever gone to a movie where we had to wait in line. Yeah. To see it. Oh man. And it it captivated me to the point that every day after school, whether I was alone or with my friends, I was playing Star Wars. Yeah, you were. Like, I was obsessed. riding my bike yeah. up and down the street in my neighborhood. Yeah. And my bike was uh, was one of those was an X-wing. Yeah. Cool. So um so in the teenage years um was there a time when you got like more serious about riding where you started maybe having inklings of like this could be something I keep doing um did you start you know having like any sort of mentors or or like what happened in your teenage years Well <clears throat> let me let me back up a little bit when I was when I was um, the summer that Star Wars came out, I saw Star Wars in May, just a few weeks after it was released, or maybe it was early June. That August, we moved to Utah from, okay. from California. And not only did we move to Utah, we moved to small town rural Utah. Scary. Yeah. And so I think change. had we stayed in the Bay Area, I think I would have had more chances to find mentors. Yeah, kind of get serious about it. Um, I, I, the other thing I had a serious interest in as a kid was monsters, Godzilla movies, King Kong, Gamera. That seems very related. All those Japanese monster movies that were made in the sixties and seventies. If they ever came on TV, I moved heaven and earth so I could watch them. Of course, these are. Back right. before the days of the VCR. So when you moved to Utah, there just wasn't a lot around. There wasn't a lot around. I didn't even have a library. Yeah. You so know, what did the, you in do? The years, like, how did in you... the years before we moved, we would go to the San Jose Public Library, which was a big library, and I would just check out books on sure you on had monster, plenty of input on superheroes and monster myths, and I just yeah. I just even though a lot of them were written at a level yeah much higher than than what my reading level was. I I I just I fully relate to that. Struggled through yeah. these books just because I wanted to to absorb any information yeah. on these monsters, on these superheroes I totally and get these that. other things. I, I, I remember I saw on PBS when I was a kid like the the special the like um the Odyssey but that has like Vanessa Williams and Bernadette Peters in it. Mm-hmm. I saw like a little bit of it and I was like what is that? And I remember like checking out the Odyssey of the library and I was like way too young to like really understand but i was like this seems like stuff that i you know and i also like do you remember wishbone yes yeah i would watch wishbone and like you know then i would be like well i need to read the time machine yes but i was like way too little to like really get it so i was like reading hg wells but i was like you know nine and like i'm sure the vast majority of the plot was like way over my head but like i was understanding like the a little bit of the world building and like a little bit of the you know i could picture like costumes you know um like the like the descriptions we're we're getting in yeah <laughs> but yeah i i i i have had the experience of rereading some books you know as an older teen or young adult that i read as like an older child and being like oh i fully missed this entire plot yep. <clears throat> yeah, but um. So yeah, what I want to know what, what happened what in your Utah, teen years. What moving to Utah did? Yeah, moving to an area where 
I didn't, it's going from an urban life to yeah. a, to a rural life. Right. The input that you is available to you is totally different. My routine went away. Mm. Um, it took me, we moved to a town, ta- we, we, we moved to Cache Valley. We moved to okay. a town called Wellsville, which is outside of Logan. Okay. And it took me nearly a year before my older brother found a place in Logan that sold comic books. Wow. So my my going to 7-Eleven yeah, to buy comics was gone. Going to the library to check out these books on yeah. monsters and other things I was interested in was gone. Yeah. Um, the one thing I did have, and I was able to resume my comic book collecting within that first year we we were living there once, yeah. once, you know, the grocery store in Logan that sold comics was discovered. Yeah. Um, the one thing I did have was books. Yeah. I still could check out books from like the, nearest the school, library. The school yeah. library. Okay. And so I, I continued to read novels. I could still save my money and go to and the Walden writing? books. I was still writing. Yeah. Okay. I was still writing short stories. Um, I had with my comic book collecting and reading, even though I could still go back and read the comics I had, that seemed to end my period of time where I was drawing okay. my own comics. But you were, so now you're just writing. Now okay, I'm just so writing. In like just a couple of minutes, what happened in your teenage years? Um, well, when I was 12, I wrote my first novel. Awesome. And, and, as that continued, my interest in writing prose, my interest in reading uh, expanded. I read, you know, I I, I love I loved the fantasy as a kid, but then I discovered yeah. fantasy genre probably by the fifth or sixth grade. Yeah, I read the Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah. I read the Book of Three series by Lloyd Alexander. I read I read the Hobbit. Yeah. which led me to reading the Lord of the Rings and in junior high school, junior high school also discovered the Shannara books by Terry Brooks okay. and other fantasy writers. So reading a ton. And so that became my fandom. Yeah. I mean, I still read comics, but yeah, but reading fantasy and science fiction. And I also stopped, <laughs> I also discovered Stephen King when I was cool. So when I, I was wa- 12. I'd love to know more about like what you were making, like what you were doing. So you wrote a novel when you were 12, then what? Then I Cuz that's not even teen. No. Take me to take me to when you're 18. When I was 18, I had written a number of short stories. I had made six more attempts at writing different novels okay. that I'd never and finished. It was interesting how I only finished, I finished the one when I was 12. Yeah. But then as my demands on myself to become totally. yeah. a better writer. Sure. And maybe this is where not having a mentor hurt yeah. me. Totally. Um, I did write some short stories and finished them, but I didn't know what to do with them. Yeah. Yeah. This is something that I talk about with a lot of creatives and, you know, I feel like, for, for, for better or worse, I, I think it's better when you're a teenager, even if your art is really for you, like even if you're not competitive about it, just the fact that you're getting older, you start kind of seeing yourself in a context um, and you start 
you know, maybe taking your your art more seriously, like whatever that means. Yes. And if you're lucky enough during that time to have mentors and resources, that can really set you up well for a career in the arts. Um, and if you don't have that, it can be a frustrating time of like having this sense that like you want to be getting better, like you want to see yourself in a broader context and you just have no idea how to connect the dots. Well, and, and another way of not having a true mentor hurt me is that I thought that I was better. I thought, sure, I, I thought, see that all the I time. I thought that I read, yeah. I wrote at a level that made me feel like it was only a matter of time before I got yeah. discovered. And, yeah. In, and a, in a negative way, you're not seeing yourself in a context. You're not be, realizing because how people far would you have read my stuff. People read my stuff and they'd say, Oh, that's so good. You're yeah. so talented. It's like the you're American so, Idol phenomenon. You're so brilliant. Yeah. Because these are, these are, family and friends that really felt that way. You're so yeah. creative, Blake. Where where do you get your ideas from? And I yeah. just said, well, they just come to me. And and I really didn't have anyone to say, okay, you know, this is good, this is not so good, to, to yeah. point out where I needed to improve myself. Sure. I didn't I didn't get that until my early twenties. Yeah. I think a lot of us have experiences like that. And I think again, you know, I I like to talk with my guests about like these teen years, because I think a lot of creatives fall off, you know, they stop being creative in their late teens or like early twenties because they maybe have had this idea, like I'm very good and I'm very special. And then when they kind of, when like really hard work is introduced or kind of this reality of like, a lot of people are just as good at this as you are. Um, or better. Or much better. And and um, you haven't been focusing on the parts of your creativity that needs the most yeah, work because then, you didn't yeah. feel like they needed the work. Right. And then a lot of people give up right then. So yeah. once again, we see like you in particular at this point where like there's not some, you know, you're, you're not this like wonderkind, um, but you love it. So how did you like, tell, tell me how you kept being creative. Like what happened? Did you go to college? What happened? Well, um, backtracking a little bit to high school, um, when I was in my younger teens, even though I still love to read, I still love to read comics, I got into movies. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm a child. And this, this probably started with Star Wars. Of course. Um, it would have started, had I been able to see the film, it probably would have started with Jaws. But You were too little. At the time, my yeah. parents wouldn't let me go see it. I saw Jaws, uh, I think I was 11 or 12, um, in a re-release. In fact, I saw Jaws 2 before I saw Jaws yeah. 1. But anyway, so I was school, I, I grew up in that great Spielberg-Lucas-influenced... Williams. Don't forget him. Yes. <laughs> the music was important, too. <laughs> yes. Era of the, of the 80s. Yeah. And so I also developed an interest in filmmaking. Yeah. Again, not a lot of resources totally. where I was living. When I was a junior in high school, I was browsing through the school library and I found Sid Field's book on screenwriting. Mm. And <laughs> I stole it. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, Pre Amazon, what are you, what's well, a kid going to do? You know, I'd never seen, even though I'd spent, Lots of times in, in Walden books, yeah, you know, browsing, trying to find stuff to read. Yeah, 
I'd never noticed any books on screenwriting yeah. or filmmaking. And I feel like it, I didn't even think about screenwriting as being a thing until yeah. I was like 25. Right. <laughs> I knew screenwriting was a thing, but I had no idea how to do it. Yeah. Even though, even after I, as probably a 14, 15 year old, I, I, I had developed this, this aspiration yeah, to okay. write for film. You knew that that's you had your sights set on I that. I had my sights set on it. I just had no idea to do it. Yeah. And then I found the screenwriting book. And so I, bef- before I left the library with the book, not checking it out, I sat down and I looked through it. And it was just like, I think I had something similar to my first experience reading those Marvel yeah. comics when I was I know was the seven. feeling. Like, I... I mean, I felt that feeling when I like listened to my first like jazz record. Yeah, like, yeah I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And even though before I graduated, I felt bad about stealing the book, so I went in and talked to the. I'm sure that they. I'm, I'm, I went in to talk to the librarian, and we worked out something where I paid for the book. Yeah. Um, I'm sure. Is, I'm sure educators just like get it. <laughs> like I'm, I feel he, like probably in retrospect, nice. I, like I, anybody would just understand. I had a few moments of panic before I went in, thinking, "Oh man, they're gonna they're gonna kick me out of school, and they're not gonna let me graduate." Yeah, I, I, uh, <laughs> I mean, but but he was very. I think he was great. He was grateful just, that I that I yeah. confessed to what I did, and yeah. I was willing to yeah to make up for it but financially. I, mean, I I totally get it though. Like you you hadn't seen that book at any stores. No. It, you said, needed it. <laughs> I said, I can't just check this out yeah. and then bring it back in, like two, I'm gonna in, in a couple it. weeks. Yeah. This is something I, I mean, need. I, yeah, I, f- I can I can imagine that mindset. And I can also imagine the librarian being like, no one else was going to check this out. Yeah. Like, it's your book. <laughs> yeah. Like, I just, I feel like you can just, you can probably let that one go. That book was there for you. Um, but so, but so you got, you got a new, they got a new one. In a way, I can say that Sid Field was my first mentor. Okay. Because he was his book was the first one that actually talked about the craft of writing. And this is this is how you write a screenplay. And yeah. here are the elements of story that are important to a film. And and they would use, you know, and he would use examples from films that I had watched. Yeah. Or he used examples from films that I was like, Oh, I gotta go see that. Yeah. You know, these are still the this early days education. of uh video rentals, but yeah. I would go to the video store yeah. and Rent movies based on what yeah. Sid Field was talking about in his so book. So you were studying. Like, I was studying. Yeah. It was way beyond play. Um, okay, so did you go to college? I did go to college. And did you go to college for something in this field? No. Okay. Um, wh- when what did you what did you study? Uh, my well, college is actually broken into two parts for me. Because just tell me like a basic, and then it will just help me decide what questions to ask. Out of um. I keep talking about all these different interests. Another huge interest I had as a teenager was sports. Okay. And I watched sports center all the time. I watched, uh, sports tonight on CNN all the time. And I had aspirations to become a sportscaster. Okay. When I was Which in is high still, school. I mean, it's not totally different. No, no, yeah. but it's still but like kind of storytelling. I think it was the and practical still... thing I could do for a living. Sure. Whereas, because I was told, you know, writing writing stories and comic books and movies, it's it's all it's all nice that you want to put your creative yeah. energy there, but you really should think about what something to do as a career. Yeah. There was still that mindset of, if you want to do something creative. 
that's great to do on your own time. Yeah. That's great as a hobby. Yeah. But you need to think about how you're going to earn a living. Nothing at all. How you're going to provide for a family. Yeah. No, it hasn't. It's really disappointing. Um, but like, yeah. And so I, I went to school as a communications major. Okay. And where did you go to school? Uh, I started at Utah State. Okay. In Logan in for Logan. people who are listening. So that's the nearest big town by it, your home. Yeah. Um, okay. So you started in communications and, uh, and then did you graduate in communications? I did not. Okay. What did you switch to? I switched to nothing cause I dropped out of school. You dropped out of school. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. So at and, the and, time. And the reason why I dropped out of school is because I tied into my creative aspirations growing up. I was never the best student Yeah. because I always wanted to be reading stuff yeah. I wanted to read. I always wanted to be re- working on my stories. Yeah. I always wanted to be thinking about creative sure. things. I daydreamed a lot. Yeah. I think and I didn't develop good study habits. I got by, I, I graduated with a B average in high Wh- school. Okay. I could have done so much better because I did better later on in my college years. I've heard the same thing from so many artists <laughs> I've interviewed. Like it's a tales all this time. But I got into college and I was overwhelmed because yeah. I did not have the study habits. And I basically... And it wasn't something you loved? It wasn't something I loved. I was where I was more passionate about the idea of, of becoming a sports broadcaster in high school. By the time I got into college, yeah, it just wasn't that passion had kind of dwindled sure. away and I found myself not really enjoying the, the classes I was taking Yeah, in that major. And you, so how old were you when you dropped out? Like tw- I was in my early twenties, 20 something. Okay. Yeah. And then you said you went back, right? So how old were you when you went back? I was 30. And when you went back, what were you studying? I, I went to the University of Utah and I studied film. Okay. So in that decade, you don't have to tell me everything that happened, but what happened with your creativity? I continued writing. Okay. I continued uh, writing short stories, making failed attempts at writing novels and and writing screenplays, and- which which as far as productive level was seemed to be more Better. of my yeah of of my wheelhouse. And did you start um like getting to know more people or like becoming more involved in like Utah writers groups or filmmaking groups? I moved to Salt Lake. One thing another thing I did after I dropped out of school at Utah State is I moved to Salt Lake for work reasons. Okay. And what were you doing? Just I was working at a bookstore. Okay. And you stayed close. I stayed close to your love. Stayed close to my love of of books and literature. And I met people through working at this bookstore. I met people through uh, getting to know some of the regular customers yeah. that were book lovers, and I'm sure some they of have my readings my, there maybe. Yeah, and I had yeah. I had fellow employees that were interested in writing as well. So I suddenly found a resource sure. or a network of people that knew some things about writing, and I would. Yeah give my stories right. and my screenplays to, and they would come back. You with, were in your own homemade college. Yeah. Totally. They would, they would come back with, with often really good constructive criticism yeah. and feedback. And, and I'm it, sure it was also helpful to just, again, with the context, like just seeing like, what are my peers working on? Like yeah. what is possible? Like getting you kind of thinking out of the box. That's really valuable. The other just thing having I, creative peers. Is the other huge. thing I did shortly after I moved to Salt Lake was I con- attended my first 
Writing Conference, which was a, it's not around anymore. It was called Conduit. Okay. And it was held in Salt Lake every year. And this was my first experience of going to panels and listening to yeah. published authors talk about the craft. Yeah. I think, you know, I have a lot of people talk, ask me, like not my guests, obviously, but like students and their parents. And also I think just, you know, people who are curious ask about like whether college is a good choice for creatives. And I think if college is doing this thing that you're talking about, giving you peers, giving you mentors, you know, cause like a panel might just be your professors. If you go to a school where your professors are actually doing the thing. Absolutely. Um, and I would say like the important, the important thing isn't whether or not you're going to college, but are you having this experience where you're talking to people who've done the thing and been doing the thing? Are you talking with people who are trying to figure it out and who are challenging you and inspiring you? Um, and are you, you know, are you working on technique in your craft? Um, but you, you know, you can do those things in college or not, but it sounds like you were doing a lot of those things. For me, college was an absolute must because you mean the second college? The second college. Yeah, so I'm, I'm at, talking at about At the University your, of Utah. Yeah. was an absolute must because my degree or my major was film. Right. The emphasis was on screenwriting. Yeah. I feel like I So I learned screenwriting from people who had produced, had their screenplays produced, yeah. who, had, who had written for decades. I was able to take, one semester I was able to take a, a, a special class from yeah. Robbie Benson. So, yeah. Who's, who's an actor. He was a famous actor in the 70s and 80s, and then he went on to become a writer-director. So is what you're saying that college was crucial for you because those resources were only available to in me, college? In college. Yeah. What started what started with with some people I, learned, I, I met and started networking with yeah. on the bookstore level became yeah. enhanced. That's what I'm tr- totally trying to level. say. Like, yeah. The other thing I did in, in, at the U was I minored in creative writing. Mm-hmm which put me in a position to be mentored by some people with my prose writing, my yeah, short yeah, yeah. story and, and other writing. So I was, I was really getting the best of both worlds yeah. from a writing aspect from both my fi- the film and the creative writing Can side. Can you tell me like what was happening like at the time that you made the decision to go back to school? Yes. Like was that, I want to, I just, I'm curious about that. I had, well, let's see. I had spent probably about seven years having my stories and my screenplays critiqued, me learning where my deficiencies were as a writer, going back, fixing those things, practice, practice, practice. I felt like I was getting better. Then I started the process of entering contests, submitting short Mm -hmm. stories to magazines, trying to make those first sales and yeah. I failed miserably. Mm. Yeah. And at the same time I was trying, you know, I, I was married. I, I, I was had, a couple, ask, I had, had a couple kids, a couple kids. Wow. And so I was trying to, I was trying to move up in my day job, get better, pay get better and benefits and stuff. Yeah. 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 And I was going nowhere there as yeah. well. I had the company I worked for, I had applied for over a 
three-year period I had played for eight or nine positions. Yeah, it just wasn't. That would have, so that when, would have increased my, my, my financial yeah. ability to provide for my family, and I had been passed over for, yeah. for each of those. And I was kind of going through, I was having kind of a pity party for myself. Yeah, well, I mean, it's depressing. Yeah. I, I've talked about this with a lot of people, too. Like, I... I, I mean, this is just, this is so just my bias and my opinion, but I do think that some of these kinds of cultural and societal, like, you know, gender types of roles of like, who's supposed to make more money can really, um, be detrimental to creativity in mm -hmm. the arts and in the sciences, yeah. because, you know, maybe a lot of women who feel like very creative in science or business arts don't pursue that because it's not you know conducive to being a stay-at-home mom and it's of course not to say that like a either one is better or worse but i'm i'm a big advocate for people doing the things that they're gonna be great at and motivated toward um and i i i, I can i can empathize with you know a man in your late 20s having kids feeling like maybe you could have gotten ahead in these things in high school mm -hmm. if you had had the right kinds of mentors. I mean, of course, like you're totally stuck. Like, I mean, it makes perfect sense. So when you decided to go back to college, it was a practical choice. Like it was something that you needed to do because you needed to be making more money. But you also were going into a major that was like not one of the practical majors. Right. Did you have to like defend that to anybody? Yep. Yeah. Do you want to say anything about it? Well, I wanted to do two things. Yeah. I, I wanted to improve my economic situation. Yeah. And I wanted to prove myself as a creator. And so yeah. w the path I took when I went back to school was basically, in my mind at that time, taking care of those two things. Yeah. And I'm yeah, with you there. yeah, after I graduated, there, there wasn't a whole lot I could do with my film degree yeah. other than say, you know, I could apply for a job and say, yes, I'm a college graduate. I got a degree in yeah. this and this. That's I why I like, that's why I'm saying with college, it doesn't matter except that that experience matters. Yeah. So if the place you need to go to get that experience is college, go there, Yeah. but it's not going to mean it's not going to necessarily mean anything. It's about the skill building. It's about the learning. It's about the, you know, network building. Yeah. Lear you know, learning how to cultivate creative resilience, you know, all that stuff. So college really helped me put myself in a position or to go after things that I wouldn't have gone after yeah. otherwise. Gave because some... it, it did give me those important skills and experiences. Yeah. More so than saying, okay, this is the degree I have, ergo, I should have right. job A, B, or C. Right. It's about the training. It's not about the degree. Right. It's about like, yeah, those kinds of, you know, I ta I, I interviewed a, an illustrator a while back and she said something that I, I still think about that I think is valuable. Part of what you should be learning in college or whatever your substitute for college is is to s maybe separate yourself a little bit from your work so you can critique your work and have your work critiqued and it doesn't feel so personal. Like even if it still feels very personal, yeah. but that's a skill, I think, being able to try to be objective about your work. I honestly feel like even though once I got outside of school, <laughs> I still found as far as 
getting published, getting opportunities in film or screenwriting, there was still most of my attempts were closed doors to me. Yeah. But I honestly feel like that if I hadn't gone to school to study screenwriting and other aspects of film and filmmaking, if I hadn't gone to school to take those classes where I was able to learn more about literature and learn more about prose writing, I probably wouldn't have continued pursuing yeah. my creative aspirations much longer. Yeah. You were kind of running out of steam and running yeah. out of avenues. So um, how long ago did you finish that degree? Like how long have you been like in the field? Uh, 17 years. Okay, cool. And so um, I don't know, like let's maybe not go totally chronological anymore, but when you're like looking back at those 17 year years, can you give me like, you know, just a list of like some of the stuff that you've like accomplished or that you've. Sure. Um, what's the resume now? I've, uh, <laughs> I, I got, don't have the coronavirus. I have allergies. You're fine. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess I could have it. <laughs> we all have it. <laughs> I think this cough that I have right it's, now it's, is old enough it's that like, it's not the coronavirus. It's like the world of the walking dead. We all have it. Yeah. 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 And, and it's, we just have to, we wait just have to wait and see if it manifests. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I, I feel a little bit nervous cause like, I had this, I had a cold, like, and I feel like I'm still getting over this cold and I feel like I'm going to get the coronavirus, like on top of this cold uh, that I had. I always worry about and sneezing. And as a singer, I feel bad about it. <clears throat> I always worry about sneezing or coughing because, you know, we do that. It's a thing that our it's bodies a, do. It's a thing that our bodies do. But when I'm in public and I feel a sneeze feel or like a cough or going out, like, I'm like, I'm like, it's pepper. Please, please, please don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, since graduation. Don't yell at me. <laughs> yeah. I know it's a weird time. It's a very weird time. Since graduation. I have asthma. Uh, I did. I did go back to school and I got a master's degree in education. Awesome. Which has allowed me some teaching opportunities. Yeah. So you've done a little teaching where? I Well, I've uh, I taught at. Broadview University, okay. when the art school was open, sure. I taught there a couple of years. And you were teaching I was teaching screenwriting. Okay. I was teaching film and society. I was teaching classes on storyboarding. Cool. Classes on, on how to create a story, um, some other writing stuff. And then I've taught some freelance screenwriting. Okay, cool. Um, I, I taught for... Uh, I taught for a, a there's a acting academy out cool. in Kaysville. Cool. I taught there for a little while. So some teaching, and then what has been happening with like writing specifically? Writing, I've I've had a chance to publish some short stories. Great. Um, nothing big. Uh, publish being published is big. Being published is being published. Yeah, being published um, is big. Oh, that payment, matters. The the. The payment I've received so far for the stories I've published have been contributor copies yeah, to the anthologies to yeah. the anthologies yeah. I've been published in. Um, I had a chance to edit an, an anthology. Cool. Called, so there, um, now now the name of the anthology is going to escape. That's me. okay, but there's been some like writing specific stuff that's not related there has to film, been, and there then has been. and then 
And then what's what's hap- been happening with film? Um, when I got to school, it was really interesting. I thought, again, you know, all the hard work and the success I'd had in school was going to translate yeah. almost immediately. And so I, do that. I started sending query letters out to agencies and production companies yeah. in, in Hollywood saying... I'm here. I'm here. I'm, I'm available. I'm, I'm a recent graduate. I'm yeah. here. And no, they no one cares. cares. No one yeah. cares. <laughs> but um, I've been able to kind of assert myself locally here in Utah yeah. in the local independent film yeah. market. Not to the degree I would have liked. Yeah. But, but at you're the same doing it. time, it's your job. I have a production company now yeah. called Rare Legend Films. Cool. Uh, we made a, a film called Adopting Trouble. It's kind of a dark comedy. It took us five years to complete. Um, can you tell me like... It's now, you can rent it or purchase it digitally on Amazon. Cool. Yeah. Can you tell me just like in, in your career in the last 17 years, what are like the things that you've been paid for? Like... You know, I think sometimes like when people are talking to artists, it's, you know, our jobs can be so like little this, little that. Um, So, you know, for someone to get an idea, like what is like, what are you doing? Just like, like as kind of as quickly as you can, like a list of just like the names of types of things you get paid for. My first professional job outside of when I got out of school was a screenwriting job. Cool. So screenwriting. And that continues to be kind of my bread and butter, what I'm getting paid for, but it's not a lot. Yeah. It's, it's money that can help us pay a bill here and there or maybe go out and do something fun. Yeah. I mean, it's not, I still have to have a day job. You working a day job too. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, I, uh, I had the opportunity to, co-create and co-write a comic book, a graphic awesome. novel yeah. with a local artist by the name of Brian Hells. Cool. Uh, it's the, the graphic novel's called Devil's Triangle. I should interview it's, him. He, he's, yeah, he's great. He's he's running his own publishing house right now. I've been now. trying to find a, a comic book yeah. author I'll, to interview. I'll put you in touch with him. Okay, that'd be great. Um, so maybe like, oh, and, and so And so I've been able to make some money off the publication of this of this comic book, selling it on Amazon, yeah. selling it on Comixology. Cool. And then um, I've been able to make uh, a little bit of money here and there with other freelance writing cool. jobs. So you're doing a lot. You're creating all the time. And I know you have some like exciting projects like in the works. Yes. Which maybe we'll talk about in a minute. Um, so I think we've gotten to the part of the podcast where I like to talk about some abstract things. Okay. Um, so I never know how to ask these questions cause they're so like personal for people, but I like to just kind of talk about like the nature of art and the nature of like identity. Um, so, I mean, if you have like ideas that are not exactly what I'm asking, but like you want to talk about them, go for it. Okay. But let's start with like, um, let's start with just like. Um, how do you feel like, do you, do you identify like as an artist or like as a creative and like, what does that mean to you? I identify myself as someone who likes to create things, Yeah. but I'm also my harshest critic. Yeah. And so I identify myself as someone who likes to create things, um, feels the satisfaction of creating things. Those endorphins are so critical I would to the say that's what person. like makes you an artist maybe yeah. like that that thing we've been talking about that like 
makes you go back to school for film, you know, instead of whatever else, you know? Um, I, yeah, I would, I would say. So, you know, if you're thinking about that, which like surely is a constant, like it's something you know about yourself, right? Like this need to be creative. How, how do you like, what does that mean to like your self-concept? What does it mean to you? Well, it's kind of an interesting thing because, and I have a friend who's an, uh, an author and screenwriter named Michael Brent Collings who talks about that, the, the nature of a creative person. Yeah. Because one side of you is this narcissist that feels like that, oh, whatever I create is amazing and people should not only experience what I create, but they should pay me money for it. Yeah. But then we all have our other side, which is the opposite of the narcissist. It's the insecure yeah. person that says, what am I doing? I'm terrible. I, I have no talent. I'm wasting my time. Yeah. I'm wasting other people's times. And so you have these two personas, at least I do. Yeah. And apparently Michael Brent does. I think it's, yeah. I, I've talked about that with a lot of artists. Right. I don't so think we have these two sides way, of ourselves at the yeah. same time. And one never seems to really dominate the other. Yeah. It's just that one comes out at certain points mm. and maybe that's where we create and you motivate, motivate and, yeah. and finish what we started. Mm -hmm. And then there's the other side that comes out when we get critiqued and something we thought that was much better than it was, isn't really that good. Yeah. And it, the, what we created has a lot of problems because or things we missed because everything's up here. We didn't really get it down on the page and yeah. people are coming in with a more subjective attitude yeah. or outlook on what you've done saying, yeah. Oh yeah, this, this is wrong. This doesn't make sense. I don't understand this. This doesn't work. Yeah. And so that side of us <coughs> is kind of there as a confirmation. Well, of course yeah. it doesn't make sense or of course it doesn't work because you're yeah. terrible. Do, do you experience that duality? Like, how do you experience? Does it does it happen like both of those things are happening in, you know, most given days? Do they no. go in like bigger phases? Bigger phases. Yeah. And do they both feel equally like you, like yes. yourself? Yes. Um, I'm trying to think of like what I want to ask. Like, I've, so, I've learned to live with both. Yeah. So my podcast is called Artifice. It has the word art in it. Mm -hmm. I also just believe that like the nature of being a creative has these dualities. Like, so, you know, I think artifice can mean like, you know, artificial, but I, it also can just mean like there are layers, like there are things that are not seen, like what you see is maybe not exactly what you get or, you know, and for, I think for a lot of artists, you know, this thing that I want to name artifice is some version of like what we're talking about. We're like, there's this part of you that's like brave and like, it's really courageous and is like totally, um, vulnerable and like has all this kind of chutzpah or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then this other side that's like very sensitive. Um, and the way that you balance those things is really invisible to people. It is. Um, so it, what, I mean, is there anything, what else do you want to talk about with that stuff? Like, I want to know how individual artists like deal with these behind the scenes things. Well, 
I or how you deal I, with the front I feel of the like, scenes. Things. I feel like they're necessary. Yeah. I th- I feel like to be an artist and to be a successful one, you have to have both. Yeah. Because one is one side of you is the part of you that decides I'm going to create this and I'm going to put it out there. Yeah. And the other side of you says, okay, you put it out there. It's terrible. What are you going to do about it? Yeah. And it used to be back in, you know, this is before I went back to school and I was making those first steps towards trying to get my name out there to get discovered. Yeah. Quote unquote. Um, and I was getting rejected by these screenplay contests. I wasn't placing in these screenplay contests. I was being rejected by these magazines and other publications for the short stories I would send them. Um, I would be devastated. Yeah. I'm wasting my time. What am I doing? Yeah. So what? what and and I would go. I would go. I would go two, three weeks without. Yeah. Getting get back. Depressed. Getting back at the computer. You yeah. Know. So do you think that has like a function? Like, is that productive? It's productive in that I came to a point where I realized, okay, it doesn't do me any good to shut down for such a long period of time. Yeah. As far as keeping that creative momentum going Yeah. and being productive. Yeah. And so what I decided to do was I gave myself one day to feel mm. bad about a rejection. Yeah. And as soon as that one day was over, I was yeah. back with this determination to get better, yeah. to fix whatever was wrong, and to become better at what I was trying to so do. So this this part of, you know, this part of the duality that's kind of like insecure, do you think it like part of its function is maybe also to say like this isn't ready. Like yes. it can be like a good, um, it can be the re it can be reasonable. Yes. I, I often, <coughs> I often wonder about people, other creatives I see on Facebook and, you know, I pay more attention to the writers, Yeah, but people that will post on Facebook, I am writing the first draft of my novel or the screenplay and it's amazing. Yeah. I was just talking about this with someone yesterday. And and I feel like and this is just me. This yeah. is this is the this is the the gospel of writing according to Blake. Sure. I feel like that if you are looking at your first draft and thinking it's brilliant. Yeah. You're just setting yourself up to fail. Yeah. Because what's going on is that you don't have a balanced duality. Yeah. going on with your art. It's the narcissist, the person that feels like the part of you that feels like I'm going to create this. It's and people are going to want to consume it to the point of paying me and praising me. That's dominant. Yeah. The other side is non-existent. You know, I find in like maybe there are some cultural differences with like the music industry versus writing. Sure. I think people feel like when you've written a novel, I think people are more impressed by that than like putting out an album. Yeah. It it Although I'm more impressed by people that put out an album. I feel like when I talk with writers, it's really very similar. 
like the amount of time that it takes good musicians to mm-hmm. put together an album that they're proud of is probably a similar amount of time that it takes to write a book. Um, I think it's, I think it's a real comparable offering an album, a book, but I've noticed that when musicians do that thing that you're talking about, like just wrote a new song and it's freaking sick, you know, or like whatever it's fire, it's flames. Um, people will respond really positively to that in the music industry and people will believe it and people will get hyped about it. And then when the thing finally comes out or maybe it never does, like I see so many musicians who will just talk about like the thing they're working on that's flames and it, it never, we never see it. You get the same thing in the writing community as well. And people almost get more hyped about that than like, if someone is quietly and carefully crafting their thing and then say, here it's done. Like the public believes the hype, yeah. which I find very upsetting. Um, but it is an interesting thing. Like then we, you know, if you're saying like, this is the gospel of writing according to Blake, like I'm on the same page as you, I think like I tend to feel more like, no, like you keep it to yourself or like to a few people until it's really right. Like you do draft after draft after draft after yes. draft. You invest everything. You do everything right. Um, I, you know, if and a you, lot of times that's if it you, comes across looking like you aren't that excited about your work. Yeah, because you haven't been exactly. bragging about it for two years. Exactly. Yeah. No, it. I f- I find it's very difficult to get people to give my the stuff I I have produced. Like I joke that our movie Adopting Trouble has a has an audience of twenty people. Yeah. But literally it's been it's been hard to get people and I'll even go to people I know and say, Hey, I have a new uh I have a new this or that or the other thing coming yeah. out. Um, would you help get the word out on social yeah. media? And they're like, Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. And I think that I don't think they're they're lying to me, but yeah. And then when I get the thing out and I say, "Okay, here it is," yeah. Um, you know, please feel free to share it. Yeah, and it's crickets. Yeah. on the other end. Yeah. Whereas the people that are kind of pushing things really hard and and using the the megaphone on yeah. social media to say, "Hey, look, here I am. Here's my awesome. Here's my awesome product." Yeah. Because they haven't taken the time to make sure that they've crafted something really good. It's almost like they flame out really fast because they mm-hmm. get the product out there. They've they've only they haven't gone beyond the first draft. Yeah. They get the product out there and people are disappointed by what they see hmm. because it's an inferior product. Interesting. Yeah, I feel like I, that doesn't happen in music. I feel like people buy and fall in love with an inferior product all the time. And that can happen in film and writing as I, well. It definitely happens in film. You know, I've, I've, you I look at, happens a you little look bit. at our, our rating, you know, if you look up adopting trouble on IMDB, it's, it's out of 10 stars. It has like a 4.5 rating. And then you look, look at the breakdown and there's lots of ones and twos mm. and, and, then I look at movies that I thought were really inferior kind of to cheap, even yeah. our film comparing, you know, yeah. doing an apples to apples comparison. 
that were low budget, like our film and maybe even made here in Utah. Yeah. And I look at their the ratings of their films and it's much higher yeah. and they have a lot more eight nines and tens than we got. Yeah. And I like, okay, and I'm like, okay, are, are these genuine yeah. uh, reviews yeah. or ratings or are or they some people kind of a popularity that, or are they people that, that know them, like yeah. them, family, friends, oh my gosh. so forth. Yeah. Is that's who's getting all the ratings because you look at some of these films and yeah, there's there's two kind of reviews. There's glowing reviews, and then there's negative reviews. Terrible reviews, yeah. yeah. And our film, even though we've gotten lots of ones and twos, nobody's yeah. nobody's taken the time to write a negative review yeah. about our film. Mm. We've only gotten positive reviews, yeah. both on Amazon and on IMDb. Yeah. Oh, man. So I don't know what that means. Yeah. Well, this is a perfect example of, like, you know, this artifice stuff, which, again, like, sometimes I think when I'm asking artists about this stuff, it's like really personal stuff. And sometimes I think it's more things like this. Like this is what people don't understand about what I'm going through in my industry, which is like the idea. And I think a lot of artists across all mediums are dealing with this right now because of social media and ratings and likes and, you know, the, the, the common man as it were is like a critic in this kind of unprecedented sort of a way. And like the rules about what's good and what's quality are like totally different. And in some ways, I think like, you know, the way that I sometimes try to deal with some of this stuff that can really bum me out is to just think the people who are like these great marketers and like, you know, that word can be really loose. Like it can just mean like someone who's talking about their stuff. Like it doesn't have to mean they're spending ad dollars. Um, but people who are great kind of, presenters or show showmen in that way maybe we have we're at a point where we have to think of those people as being creative in a totally separate medium yes yeah and that's a medium where i haven't been able to break through yeah as far as it's tricky getting getting people's attention it's not your medium but as an independent artist it's something i absolutely have to have yeah totally but it's not the medium but it, it's it's tricky and, and troublesome that your ability to succeed in the medium that you really excel in and are intuitive about depends on your ability to adopt this other medium. Which I'm not intuitive not in, about. Yeah, not no, intuitive not at all. At all. Um, I, I relate to that a lot. Yeah, you know, part of the way that, I, that I've dealt with this, I, I saw two weeks ago I was teaching a class um, at the Lionel Hampton jazz festival in Idaho. And, uh, I was teaching a class on like creative entrepreneurship, like what to do when you wear all the hats in your, in your business. Um, and someone asked me about social media and, you know, was like, Oh, I hate it. It's such a bummer. Like, what do you do? And like, it feels so inauthentic. And I feel like, you know, as creatives, we can try to, be creative about how we do that stuff. And like, for me personally, like that's another reason why I started this podcast. Cause then I know at least once a week, I have something to post about that. I'm so proud of that feels fully authentic. That feels like important, feels meaningful, you know? Um, but like some of that was just like, I hate posting. Like I hate, I don't know what to write about. You know, especially because like music is like my medium 
like how, what is Instagram to me, you know? Um, but like, if I know like every Tuesday I can post about like whatever awesome person I interviewed, that gives me like a little relief, you know, it gives me something I can push. That's not about me at all. Um, but still feels like, you know, like this creative thing that's kind of designed for digital media. It's a podcast. Um, so I don't know what my point is other than I think a lot of us are going through. It's nice to have things to get your name out there. Yeah. Whether it's a podcast or something you've created. It's recurring media. It's It's an ongoing conversation. Yeah. That's what it feels like to me. And it also feels like to me, like, I mean, getting my name out there, like my podcast has, you know, depending on the guest, like maybe 250 downloads, which I think is great. You know, that's 250 people that weren't listening to anything before from me. Um, That that could, you know, 10 times the adopting trouble audience (laughs) (laughs) if your listeners, you know. We yeah. Go check out my movie. Guys, go check out Blake's movie. Okay, give. will you give me like the links to it so I can sure. post them? Sure. Help me remember it because I'm, I'm worried I'll forget. Um, it, I'll it, watch it. Is, it is streaming on all the illegal streaming well, stream Give me sites some too. secret links and I'll like, I'll post them somewhere. But um, what was I going to say? Oh, I was going to say, I feel like for me, you know, this getting myself out there, it almost feels more important to me, like this conversation that we are having. Mm-hmm. Like now you're a person who I know, you know, like I almost care less about the listeners or like the future listeners and more just about like how much better it feels to me in these, in this art career that can be really isolating, that can be really misunderstood where I can feel misunderstood where, you know, every time someone says to me, like, have you thought about going on the voice or like, you know, like just this past weekend, um, I was talking to someone at the baby shower uh, who was asking me, like, what are you up to? And, you know, I don't know if you feel like this, but like, I hate answering that question sometimes to people who aren't artists, because I know that their response to my answer is going to hurt my feelings. Like, you know, so I said, like, I have an album coming out. And she, the lady was like, well, what do you what do you do with that? And it's just a question that I'm just like, uh I don't want to answer that question to you. Like, you know where you consume music. Like I'm doing that, you know, like, you know what I mean? But like the, the way that the question is asked, it's like, that's cute. Like, what are you doing? What do you, what do you do with that? Yeah. You know, like we all know what Taylor Swift does with it. Like I'm a different thing. And like, I am a different thing, but at the same time, not at all. But at the same time, Taylor Swift was at one time where you are. Yeah. And also I don't want to be where she is. I, that's not my, I do a totally niche genre, you know, like the, the misunderstanding about it can be exhausting. And when people trying to do apples to apples comparison, like people in my family don't even ask me about what I'm working on because they've watched me for decades have these aspirations ever since I was a little kid. Yeah. And here I am in my fifties and I'm still kind of trying to break through. Yeah. But that's not the point yeah. anymore. Right. Maybe when I was in my twenties and thirties, the, the real struggle and the frustration was that I wanted to break through. I wanted to have that career. I wanted to achieve every goal that I had set for myself yeah. from back when I was seven years old on up. 
yeah. as far as being a, 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 a not only a creative, yeah. but a creative who made a living yeah. with his art. Yeah. Now that I'm older, I still have that drive. Yeah. I still want to create. I still want I still want what I what I create to be part yeah. of what I do to help provide for my family yeah. and and secure my future. Yeah. That still drives me. But at the same time, what I'm doing is I'm fulfilling a side of me yeah. that has been part of me ever since I was a little kid. Yeah. Well, and I think all of us you know, even the, the people who become famous or whatever, you know, who are making the the crazy money doing these things, I think most of those people are also following that same drive that you're following, that I'm following. And it's really easy to look at people who've like broken through and be like, well, of course you should have kept trying. You know, and when people like break through older, everyone suddenly rewrites the whole past of like, oh, well, you were destined for this. Like, you just kept going. And then if you keep going and you haven't had, like, these big, like, manifestations of success, it's, like, a little sad, <laughs> which is just, like, it's such a bummer. And, uh, you know. Well, and there's also that point when you or I will make our big break through and somebody will call us an overnight success. Oh yeah, I talk about that with my students an, all the time. Which is an oxymoron because yeah. an over anyone who's an overnight success, they're not considering the unknown, which is right. all the years all at, those or years. even decades that this person spent struggling yeah. to improve their craft, to learn, to yeah. to to fix what their deficits were in yeah. creating whatever it took. Yeah. It took, you know, it takes everyone some people get discovered sooner in life than other people. Yeah. But for all of us, there's that period of time that, um, that we have to put the time and the work in. Yeah. There and are the, people who are overnight successes yeah. who do one or two things and suddenly they find themselves yeah. in a position where they're doing something that's popular, that's engaged a large audience and they're making money and they're being scientific to contracts and they have an agent, they have a, they have a yeah. manager, but these people usually flame out yeah. just as fast. And, or like, you know, when we're looking at, you know, even someone who's not flaming out, like, like Leonardo DiCaprio or something, you're thinking about someone big or like a big director, you know, all of the people whose careers make that person's career possible are usually more like me, more like you, like, people who are not famous but who are part of who are part of this thing um and you know just maybe to bring it back like I think I want to say like you know again maybe part of this like artifice you know misunderstanding type of a question is just that you know I think most of us that are professional adult creatives our goal isn't that giant big thing anyway our goal is just like to make things that matter to make things that are going to affect someone. Um, and that's the thing that like, I wish more people could understand. Um, because I think if, if people could understand that the value isn't necessarily in the success or the success isn't in like the value, you know, whatever, whatever way you want to think of it, the success is in like 
executing that uh, vision that you have, um, that I wish more people could see like a value there, like just in that um, and kind of apply that to like their own lives in like whatever kind of small ways. Sure. I, I would like to see more of that. Well, and part of my hope of coming on to your podcast and talking about the things we've talked about is perhaps I can be of help to someone who might be struggling, who might be dealing with some rejection, yeah. who might be feeling like maybe this isn't for them, maybe these creative impulses, this desire to make something um, in this medium that they're passionate about. Yeah. Maybe they feel like, uh, no, maybe it's not for me. I'll just dump it all and go totally get a business degree and... I'm not passionate about it, but at least I can feel like I'm doing something. And, and maybe they'll listen to this podcast. Maybe they'll listen to my story yeah. and say, okay, maybe I shouldn't give up. Totally. Maybe I need to be more practical or pragmatic about my goals or my expectations I'm putting yeah. on myself, but this isn't something I need to give up. Totally. I, I fully agree. Or someone who's never been uh, creatively inclined you know, in terms of like fine arts, you know, maybe starts to have a thought of like, oh, it's not about the thing. It's not about a career necessarily. It's about like, it's about a, a process. It's about a thought, a thought process. It's about a, you know, a mechanical process or something tangible that we're doing. It's about curiosity. It's about reaching out and connecting people like it's an exercise in empathy it's an exercise in curiosity it's about accomplishing something that yes on a technical level or on a craft level or on or on an aesthetic level there may be things that need to be fixed with it there may be things that may come across as amateurish just because you don't have like the the, skill the skill or the tools or the experience you need yet but Bottom line, you've created something yeah. that would not exist had you yeah. not created it. And the it. value in that is like, that is so valuable. And I think those of us that continue into the arts, into adulthood, get that, you know? And I, I, I appreciate those stories and each individual person's kind of interpretation of that feeling, interpretation of that experience. Um, you know, I think it's valuable. So will you tell us what you're working on now? What are you sure, excited about now? Sure. And I did remember the name of that anthology Great. that I <laughs> that I edited. It's called Heroic. Tells Heroic. Of the, tells of the Extraordinary. You can get it on Amazon along with cool. Adopting Trouble. Um, I am working on three projects that I have been given the opportunity to be hired to do. Um, I'm working on a low budget horror film that um, the producer director I'm working with. Uh, he gave me a couple. Of, he goes, I have access to these two locations. I have this much money to spend on wow. the film. Go create. Yeah. And so that's been an interesting process. That's, that's it's not- taken me much longer to get through this script than other scripts because yeah. I have to write around these specific things. locations. Is that Johnny's book? No, that's something else. No. Okay. Um, I also have been hired to write the third. There's a, there's a creator by the name of Vincent J. Roth who created a, a superhero and he produces 
what's been a series of low budget kind of campy superhero movies. Cool. Um, set around this hero called Surge of Power. Um, I am writing the third film in that series right now. Wow. And then Johnny Worthen, yeah. who I collaborated with on a TV pilot based on his book, What Immortal Hand. Cool. Um, from that relationship, I was able to, uh, and Johnny was a great help with this, I was able to get the film rights for his Unseen series, Eleanor, Celeste, and yeah. David. And so right now I'm working on the script awesome. for for Eleanor. I'm going to call it The Unseen. Yeah. Because I think that's... It's a little catchier. That's, that's, yeah. a, that's a cool more, movie. That's to- a cool yeah. movie's title. Totally. Um, it sounds more like a movie and Eleanor sounds like a book. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with um, you. So I'm, I'm working on the... On the script for that and also the pitch package cool. and I want to send out the pitch package and the script if 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 um these agents of certain actors cool. certain name actors you have people I w- in your mind I have people in mind that I want to send the script yeah. and cool. the pitch package out to to get what they call letter of intents and if you have letter of intents from a few actors from a few actors can, or a director that's done some things that you are can known. Pitch it. Then you can. The next step is you can raise some. You can some money fundraise. Yeah. Cool. Um, that's awesome. Uh, for the listeners, my interview with Johnny is I think episode twelve. Um, okay. The last question I ask everybody is at this moment in time, what's your dream collaboration, and. I would love for you to tell me, like, a director, actors. It doesn't have to be for this particular project you're working on with Johnny, but uh, who who would you love to work with? Who's the dream team for you? Um, a composer, always, if you want. Well, boy, we could we could talk about composer, director. Yeah, give me your bill list. Okay, like who, so, who, in a total so crazy I, dream world, who's in your I still want to write for team? Steven Spielberg. Okay. Even though, you know, he's getting up there in years and I know his career is probably winding down. I would let you pick someone who's dead. So um, yeah, do if it, it's a dream. If someone's dead, I would love to write for Alfred Hitchcock. Cool. Um, yeah, who, who's starring? Who's writing the music? Oh, John, John Williams. Absolutely. Okay, of course. Um, as a backup, uh, Hans Zimmer. Yeah. I love Hans Zimmer. I also love... Um, Danny Elfman. He would be great. <laughs> <laughs> just, just No, suggesting. I was going to say Alan Silvestri, because I love the work he's done on the, <clears throat> the Marvel <clears throat> films. Um, Philip Glass. <laughs> just kidding. I'm sure. just giving you names. Okay, who stars in your um, movie? Well, who stars, uh, in, who stars in this dream dream cast? I've always wanted to work with Tom Hanks, of course. Who he's who, gonna be fine, and yeah, he's so they, much money, he's today, gonna be fine. They announced today that he and his wife were released from the hospital. They've been Tom and Rita are gonna be been just cl- they've been fine. cleared of the they've been cleared of the, the virus. Good for them. Um, you know, one person I've always wanted to work with, and I don't know if it's a popular choice now. I know for a time he, he wasn't a popular choice. Who? But I would love to work with Tom Cruise. Oh, 
Yeah, I mean, I, people love Tom Cruise. I think he's he's I know he's, he's a very underrated. I thought actor. you were going to say Mel Gibson, and I was going to get worried. No, yeah. <laughs> I was like racing. Um, no, Tom, I think Tom Tom Cruise is, feels Tom Cruise way better very, than Mel Gibson is to a me. Very un, un, underrated actor. I would also yeah. like to work with who's uh, your female lead. Oh, um, I think it would be really cool to work with Julia Roberts. Cool. Um, there's also an actress. I watched the series, uh, the Watchmen. I haven't seen it. It's the HBO series. Yeah. It's like, it's I the sequel to the comic. It's not the yeah. sequel to the movie. Um, there's an actress by the name of Regina King. Hmm. She was also, she played a cop in a series called Southland that I really liked. I, I would love to work with her. In fact, I, you know, Try to get that just, letter of just intent. To, just to get that out yeah, there. Put it in the universe. Just, just yeah. Well, as I'm <laughs> as I'm working on the script for Eleanor, there is a part that I'm seeing Regina King in my mind. Cool. As I write the script. I love that. Blake. I think thank Julia you. I think Julia Roberts would be awesome to She's work so with. She's so good. She's yeah. so versatile. Um, she hasn't been doing a lot lately. No. She did that show, the T of a TV show. Yeah. I didn't on, watch it. On Homecoming, Amazon Prime. maybe. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet. It's on my like list. Anyway, there's a lot of the people that I would like to work with were big in the eighties, nineties yeah. when I was younger and more impressionable and yeah. making my first decisions or feeling my first aspirations yeah. to do this. And now they're they're all older and but it'd still be yeah. amazing to work you with. You can them. say like nineteen nineties Julia Roberts. That's fine. You know, it's a director I would love to work with. Of course, he's getting up there and years as well would be Ridley Scott. Cool. Because I love Alien. I love Blade Runner. I, yeah. Just Cool. Anyway, I'm, well, I'm just can, geeking Can out. you tell us where to find your stuff? That's okay, the last so thing. Okay, so Heroic is on Amazon.com, as okay. is Adopting Trouble. You can download it digitally or rent it Okay. for as low as 99 cents. I think maybe Andrew and I will watch that tonight as part of our little quarantine activity there you go watch more movies yeah um and then uh there's there's an anthology that's also available to purchase through amazon and barnes and noble called weird wasatch it was done by a local publishing house it's stories that take place in utah uh more paranormal horror i wrote a mormon zombie apocalypse story awesome and What's it called? It's called. Oh, it's uh, in Weird Wasatch. It's in okay. Weird Wasatch. It's it's. I think it's the second story for in the, the anthology. The story's called Good Works. Awesome. Um, for the for the listeners who aren't in Utah, Wasatch is our is our mountain range, and it's W A S A T C H. Yes. It's our it's our mountain range. Um, also, okay. you can go to comicsology.com and amazon.com for my graphic novel. Do you have a Triangle. website? I don't have a website other than my film production company. It's rare legend, rare legend, rare legend.com. Okay, cool. And what about like Instagram? Do you want people uh, to follow you anywhere? Follow me on Facebook. I, I need to get on Instagram. Yeah, I know it's hard. <laughs> well, I mean, like I'm on Instagram. I mean, Instagram feels difficult for me and I'm 32 and now it's like, Oh, TikTok, And I'm like, Oh, I yeah, just my can't. Kids I are, don't know. My kids are all about TikTok right I now. I feel and pressure, but I also feel like, denial but i'm i'm on the old people's social media you yeah. can follow me on twitter even though i i don't get on twitter a lot because i think it's really 
toxic right now. Yeah, I don't know. I don't really um, use Twitter. But, but Facebook. But you can follow me on maybe Twitter. Twitter, Facebook is what I'm mainly okay. on. Um, but I maybe maybe this will motivate me to get on Instagram yeah. finally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do it. Okay, Blake, thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to Artifice. Our music is by Jerem Hansen and artwork by Sarah Keel. If you'd like to recommend a professional artist for an interview on the podcast, please send me a note through my website, emvocals.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks again. Have a great week.